Turn with me now to Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. And Daniel 10 is really the home stretch, the final leg of this magnificent book. There are so many lessons to be learned, so many truths proclaimed, and Daniel 10 is the final gateway of the final last chapters of the final section of this book, and it really is filled with such glory, but but very dense. If you look at Daniel 10, there is this introduction, which I will cover in verses 1 through 3, but then you see this amazing description, amazing revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ. And then you get a sneak peek from the natural to the supernatural, and you get to see how heaven works, how angels work. It's just tremendous to observe what goes on, so to speak, behind the curtain. And then in Daniel 11, and just turn and flip over to there, you get this meticulous prophecy, an exacting prophecy, And you can almost just hear the amount of detail and the amount of precision. It is exacting. Listen to things like this, where you have in verse 5, Then the king of the north grew strong with his princes, and he grew strong against him and reigned over it with a great authority. And at the end of these years, then the king of the daughter of the king of the south came to the king of the north, and and with an equitable agreement. And you just read all these different things. The king of the north did this, and the king of the south did that, and the king of the south did that against the king of the north, and the king of the north did this, and the king of the south retaliated. And, he, and it's just step by step, blow by blow of information. And, and there's just so much going on, and it's sometimes hard to get our hands around why. You have this amazing book, which talks about amazing deliverances. You have Daniel in the lion's den. You have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. You have Daniel with Nebuchadnezzar's dream and how Nebuchadnezzar wanted to execute everybody, all the wise men of Babylon. And you have all these amazing deliverances, time in, time again, over and over and over and over. Even Daniel's desire to eat vegetables. God just intervenes. That's amazing. And then you have amazing prophecies. Ones that span the course of human history. Ones that use amazing imagery from a statue and a stone to animals and the one like a son of man, the final Adam in Daniel chapter 7. It's just astounding. And so you're just overwhelmed with great story after great story, great prophecy after great prophecy. And then you get to Daniel 10 and you hear about the king of the north, versus the king of the south, and the king of the south, versus the king of the north. And did you know what the king of the north did, and then what the king of the south did, and what the king of the south did against the king of the north? And it's so meticulous. It's, it's scary, in a sense, to preach through. That's why we're going to have Joe do it. <laughs> I was about to say just kidding, but I'm, but I'm not going to say that. So the, And I was even dreading it when coming to write commentary on it for the MacArthur Old Testament commentary. Because on the one hand, it is meticulous. And so to write the commentary on it, you have to research all these historical sources and synthesize it together. And on the other hand, the question is, you have a spectacular book. Why does it end like that? Why not another 
bang-up vision? Why not another dramatic story? Why not another epic deliverance? Instead, you just hear a bunch of facts about the king of the north and the king of the south, and it's really a blow-by-blow of everything that happens in the intertestamental period and beyond. Why? Why? And as always, and this is so important to realize, as always, as I began to study Daniel's 10 and 11 and 12, the word of God vindicates itself. That's the lesson that you need to know. There are times in our lives when we wonder why the Bible says something or why it says what it says, or we sometimes wonder, is that really wise or is it really relevant for today's culture and today's questions? And we question the Bible and skeptics question the Bible. What we must have absolute confidence in is that the Bible will always vindicate itself. The Bible will always vindicate itself. Give it time, give it thought, and the scriptures will always win out because that's what the scripture is. When the Bible says this is how you do parenting, and then the psychologist came and they said, no, that's not how you do parenting, and people question the Bible, guess what happens 30 years later? Then the psychologists say, oh, well, actually, you know, we learned something over the last 30 years. They never say they were wrong. They just said we grew, we progressed, and we figured out that, yeah, maybe it's good to discipline your kids. That's a good thing. No one's thought of that before until we discovered it. And you just think, well, what about Solomon, Proverbs, you know? And then all these kinds of different things. People question the existence of the Hittites. And then archaeologists discover the civilization of the Hittites, just like the Bible said. Over and over and over, the Bible vindicates itself. Don't jump off the bandwagon, so to speak. Don't, don't jump off the scriptures just because some skeptic raises a fuss. The Bible will always vindicate itself. And even my question of, Lord, what is going on here? How, is this, how do we make sense of the ending of this book? Like always, the Bible vindicates itself. And Daniel, as he's reflecting on everything, as he's reflecting on what God had given to him in the final revelation of his life, he says in the opening verses, verses 1 through 3, he establishes the purpose of this entire conclusion. And it's the perfect conclusion to the entire book because what it's all about is one word, one word, and that word is certainty certainty. Certainty and assurance, that's something we all care about. We all care about. When somebody makes a promise to you, they talk about all that they're going to do for you. What do we often say? Are you sure? We ask that question. Sometimes when there's a medical procedure and a medical proposal given to us, a plan, we ask the doctor, what's the probability on this? How sure are you that this is going to work? Why? Because we want assurance. We want certainty. When you buy something, we always look, is there a guarantee? Is there a warranty? Can you return it? Can you trade it in? Why? Because we want assurance. We are all about certainty. When you get a job offer, what does everybody say? Make sure it's in writing. Why? Because we want it to be sure. We want it to be solid. We want it to be reliable. And that's one way to do it. Think about this. There are entire industries, entire industries that revolve around certainty. You have the insurance industry. 
That's all about having certainty, certainty in a crisis. And I just learned that there's even a reinsurance industry. Insurances need insurances. That's what people do. Then you have agencies that are all about verification. Sometimes when you type in a password now, it says, look on your phone and get a text message or put your fingerprint on here or there or the other. That, that's an industry of people who are trying to make sure you are you and that we're certain about that. That's why notaries exist. That's why guarantees exist. That's why everything that we have with verification, insurance, all of these different things, that's why they all exist. Huge industries exist because we want certainty. To put it on the most simplistic and essential level, in pastoral ministry, and I think we resonate with this in our own hearts and lives, how many people have come and said, I just want to make sure I'm saved. I want to make sure I'm saved. Amen. Amen. We want certainty. We want assurance. And in life, there are all kinds of ways that certainty can be established, that certainty can be conveyed. You can have an insurance plan. You can have verification. You can have a guarantee. You can have a warranty. But also you can have this, and this is crucial. One way to establish certainty is to have a detailed plan, a detailed plan. Sometimes a business person will come and make a proposal, and he says, I'm going to do this for the company. I'm going to do that for the company. It's going to grow this big, and you're going to love me this much, and all this kind of stuff. And what does the boss say? That sounds nice. Do you actually have a plan? Do you have a way to get that? Do you you have a step-by-step process that's going to get us from beginning to end? I need to see not just your thoughts, not just your hopes and dreams. I need to see a plan. And the more detailed that plan is, the more certain we are that you're prepared to do and execute exactly what you said you would do. And all of this notion... All of this notion of certainty and how we can have certainty and even a detailed plan, this comes together at the end of the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapters 10 and following. As we have said, there are so many prophecies and so many promises and so many events and so much exaltation of God. And God is guaranteed that his people have a future. And God is guaranteed that history is moving in a certain direction. And God is guaranteed that things will get worse, but God will preserve his own and that there will be an antichrist, but he will be overcome by his son, the true Christ. And evil will be defeated and good will triumph in God's son who will reign forever. And Israel will be restored and Israel will be forgiven. And everything in all of his promises and vision and revelation and covenant and plan will be fulfilled. And God has laid out and shown over and over again the nature of these promises. And at the end of the book, people are still going to be asking, are you sure? And so God says, let me give you one Last revelation to tell you I'm sure. I'm very, very sure. And you can be very, very sure. And remember, we said that one of the ways that you can prove certainty and you can demonstrate assurance is by giving a detailed plan, one that covers every contingency. And what do we have in Daniel 10? God says, if you're wondering about the supernatural, not just the natural, the supernatural, I can tell you what the angels are doing. I got that covered. Contingency covered. What about the natural? Daniel 11 says, I can give you a step-by-step plan. 
God can give you a step-by-step plan each step along the way. What the king of the north does, what the king of the south does. If you feel like it's boring, just know this. That's God telling you, I've got every single event covered for the next 300 years all the way to the final seven years of the tribulation. Total certainty. Why? Because he has every step mapped out. There is no question. You can have certainty. And most of all, you can have certainty because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel sees Christ and he sees his glory. And one look at Christ, you know, it's a done deal. Why? Because Jesus is who he is. This is all about certainty. This is all about certainty. There are a lot of texts in the scripture about its certainty, about its truthfulness. We can think about Psalm 93, which says that the word of God is trustworthy. We can think about Psalm 119, 89, that the word of God is settled in heaven. We can think about Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a light unto my feet. Why? Because it's the most reliable guide there is. We can think about Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. We are familiar with that text, but we forget sometimes that this is not just talking about our relational trust with the Lord, even though that's included, but in the context, it is talking about God's statutes and God's law and God's ordinances. And what are we trusting in when we trust the Lord? We're trusting in what he has said, as opposed to our own understanding. The word of God is trustworthy. Even in Genesis 1, we learn how trustworthy God's word is. God said it, let there be light, and there was what? Light. God says what he means and what is. It is that way. And if you are wondering, well, is that truly a lesson that we learn in Genesis 1? You hear that over and over and over again. God said, it was. God said, it was. God said, it was. God said, it was. And then in Genesis 3, what does the serpent say? Did God really say and if you've been reading the whole time, it's, well, yeah, and that's what is. And God said, and that's what is. And God said, and that's what is. And then all of a sudden, Satan says, and God said, and it's not exactly that way. And you have to ask yourself, really? Because I don't know. For the last two chapters, it's been pretty consistent. We should have always known. God says what he means, and God says what is. But there is one key text that talks about the certainty of God in the broad theological corpus of the scriptures. And that's 2 Peter 1. Turn there with me. This is crucial that you understand this, both for the lesson general and even this specific text of Daniel chapter 10. In 2 Peter 1, Peter says in verse 16 that we did not follow made-up myths, when we made known to you the, the power and the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses. And Peter then waxes eloquent on the transfiguration. And he talks about the sight of it, how there was glory. And he talks about the sound of it, because there is the words, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Here's what Peter says. And this is amazing to think about. He's writing this letter at the end of his life, and it was probably about 37 years before that he saw this moment. And he says this, I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember like it was yesterday. Because it engaged every single one of my senses. Sight, engaged. Hearing, engaged. 
everything that I could feel, everything that I could touch, I knew what was happening. And what does he say? What does he say? Verse 19 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter. And we have more sure the what? The prophetic word. It's not made more sure. No, 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 that's not what the Greek says. It says this, we have as more sure the prophetic word. Here's what Peter said. Take the most vivid memory you've ever had, one that's engaged every single one of your senses, and know this, God's word is more sure than that. God is, God's word is more sure than what you know you know. You say, I know I'm here in Sojourners right now. God's word is more sure than that. You say, I, I know I exist. God's word is more sure than that. You say, I, I know I'm breathing. God's word is more sure than that. Peter's point is this. This book is more sure than what you know you know. That is the level of certainty of God's word, and we need to live that out. And what Daniel experiences at the end of this amazing book is a lesson. It is the exemplification. It is the execution and implementation of this truth. That God's word is more sure than what you know you know. And God makes that case to Daniel to conclude the book so that at the end of the book, you not only learn those lessons, you learn that those lessons are more sure than what you know you know and what you see you see and what you feel that you feel. That's how the book of Daniel ends. And there's no better way to end the book than on that high and certain note. And so with that, as Daniel reflects and introduces all this to us, he gives us three aspects of certainty. Three aspects of certainty in the first three verses of Daniel chapter 10, three aspects of certainty, its value, its importance, its import, its certainty itself, more on that in a second, so that we understand the importance of this lesson, and we understand how to live out this lesson, and we understand the content of this lesson. All of that is packed into this passage. And so let's go through this together with the first point, which is this, the circumstances of certainty, the circumstances of certainty. Notice the first phrase of verse one, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the third year of Cyrus is the year 536 B.C., it is three years after Israel returned to the land of Israel, <clears throat> after the exiles returned home. And in that first year, when the exiles are returning home, Daniel had great hope. Daniel had great expectation. He, he saw that God's hand was at work and was moving and people were coming home and there was a restoration beginning. And what he prayed for was that restoration would turn into revival and that revival would turn into the completion of everything that God had promised his people. He wanted it all said and done right then, right there. That's what he desired. And that's actually what prompts the 70 weeks prophecy, which reminds Daniel, it ain't this year. It's not this time. It's not just at the end of 70 years. It's 70 times what? Seven, a much longer period of time. 
And Daniel learned that the hard way. He learned that the hard way because it's three years in and everything that he had hoped for and everything he had been excited about and everything he had been looking forward to was dashed by this time. He saw Israel going home, but then he learned not a lot of people went home. It's 42,000 Israelites, not even the size of Santa Clarita. And that's not a nation. Santa Clarita is definitely not a nation. <laughs> and so that was a disappointment. And yes, they went home to rebuild the temple. Sounds good. But by th year three, temple rebuilding had come to a halt. Had come to a halt. Everything they, that Daniel saw that had potential, <clears throat> it was stopped. And Daniel saw that Israel's enemies had, had given way to this return home. But three years later, what Daniel saw was this. All of Israel's enemies returned, and they had the upper hand. This wasn't anything like the ending it was supposed to be. This was a disaster. Do you want to know why God impresses upon us the certainty of Scripture? It is this. In part, to encourage you when you're discouraged. It is to help you understand what to tell yourself when you seem like <clears throat> you've taken two steps forward, but 200 steps back. What do you tell yourself when life doesn't make sense, when there is so much that it just doesn't comport with what you thought God was going to do <clears throat> and what God had promised for you and what God had ordained, when, when, when life doesn't seem to correspond, when life doesn't meet expectations, when life doesn't seem to be working out, what do you tell yourself? And Daniel said, I was in that situation. I felt that. I lived that. And you know what God himself told me? My word is sure. That's what you learn. What you have to learn in the time when life doesn't make sense, you have to tell yourself, but the word of God is more sure than what I know I know. What you have to tell yourself when you are discouraged and you see that life goes seemingly is going backwards and not forwards is even so, God's word is more true than what I am feeling or seeing or touching right now. You have to say that to yourself over and over and over again because that's the truth. God never wastes a doctrine. And if you wonder, why is this whole thing about certainty? I know it's true. Praise the Lord that it's true. But what is its relevance? What is its intended application? In part, it is this. That's what you tell yourself when your eyes play tricks on you and when your heart plays tricks on you and your emotions play tricks on you because it looks like something different. What you have to go with is not what things look like, but the way things really are. And that's what God's word is. That's what God's word is. And along the line of the truth, and along the line of seeing that truth with clarity, <clears throat> notice the last phrase, or the last phrase of the first phrase of verse 1, which is this, in the third year of who? Cyrus, king of Persia. It's absolutely fascinating to study the names and, and realize this, how precise Daniel is here. You see, Cyrus's other name is Darius, Darius. And that was used in chapter 5, verse 
31 and chapter 6, verse 8, and chapter 9, verse 1, over and over and over, the Bible, the book of Daniel, talked about Darius, and Darius isn't a name for a different person, but actually the title, the, the Median Persian title for this guy named Cyrus. Just like you have the king of Egypt, his, his title is what? Pharaoh. Just like the rulers of Rome, they're often called Caesar. In the same way, you have this guy. His name is most often called in the book of Daniel, Darius. And if you're still unfamiliar and kind of struggling with how somebody can have kind of a name that's their title, let me just tell you a humorous story. One time I was talking with the employee and, and he said, hello, Abner Chow. And I said, hi, good to meet you too. And, and, and we talked and everything was Abner Chow. That's a great question, Abner Chow. I, it's, that's a very important thought, Abner Chow. I, I'm so pleased to meet you, Abner Chow. Goodbye, Abner Chow. And every conversation I had for months, he never just said, Dr. Chow, Abner, Mr. Chow, Mr. President, whatever. It was always, hello, Abner Chow. Good, Abner Chow. I said, okay, I like this guy. He's cool. And... His dad came up to me at a meeting once. He said, I'm so embarrassed to tell you this. And I said, what? What happened? He said, I was talking to my son, who's had evidently numerous conversations with you. And I said, yeah. And he said this, my son told me, isn't it neat that we have a chancellor like John MacArthur, and we have a president, and we have an Abner? <laughs> and he said, Abner is our president. No, 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 no. There's a president, and then there's an Abner. Abner Chow. And he says, Abner's not a title of an office at TMU. Abner's the guy's first name. And, and the son just grew pale and he's like, the whole time I've been saying Abner as if it was chancellor or president. And I said, hey, where did this, where did this student graduate from? TMU. It's our fault. What can I say? <laughs> we can't fault this guy. And I just said, hey, I'm so honored that he thought Abner was in title of an academic office. <laughs> I like that. You can have a name that's a title. People do it all the time, even at TMU. <laughs> and this... It, throughout the book of Daniel, the guy's name was always Darius, 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 Darius. But what is it in chapter 10, verse 1? It's not Darius, it's who? Cyrus. And you have to ask the question, why does Daniel switch names? Why does Daniel switch names? Why does he use a different name to talk about this guy? And there's a reason. Because in Isaiah 45, Isaiah 2 hundred years before this moment, 200 years before this moment said, Cyrus will return Israel home. And he didn't just say the king of Medo-Persia or the king of Persia or a king. He named the guy Cyrus. If you say, is that good? Let me put it this way. That would be as if George Washington said about 200 years from now, we're going to have a president named Barack 
Obama. You know, for a lot of reasons, George Washington would have never said that. Isaiah says, let me tell you, 200 years from now, you're going to have a king named Cyrus, and he's going to return Israel home. And people said, what language is the word Cyrus in? He said, I don't know. I just know the guy's name, Cyrus. Medo-Persia wasn't even on the map at that time, and he named it. That's a powerful, powerful demonstration of the prophetic accuracy of the word of God. Amen? Amen. And Daniel put this here to remind everybody and remind himself, God's word is true. In fact, it's this true. You know, why is God's word so certain? Why is it reliable? Peter says this because it's the prophetic word. That's what he says. We have as more sure, not just the word of God, not just scripture, but the what? The prophetic word. You want to know why? Because this word is prophetic. This word isn't just describing what is real. This is what predicts what will be real. This is what declares will happen. This is so sure, it actually makes reality. That's how sure the word of God is. It isn't just descriptive. It isn't just, oh, characteristic and historically accurate in its nature. It is so certain. It is so reliable because it actually defines reality and determines it. That's what this word does. And that's what we have to remember. And Daniel said, I was so discouraged. I was so discouraged until I remembered that the word of God is more sure than what I know that I know. Why? Because the word of God is what actually caused what I know to be what I know. That's how sure it is. Brothers and sisters, understand this. When you are discouraged, when you feel like everything doesn't make sense, you have to tell yourself and remind yourself of the certainty of the word of God. And speaking of which, then, that leads us to the second point. The certainty of certainty. We don't just have the circumstances of certainty. Now we have the certainty of certainty. How sure is God's word? How sure is it? Why is it so sure? What makes it so sure? And for the rest of verse 1, we have six reasons why the word of God is sure. Why you can rely on this book. Why Daniel could rely on this specific revelation and why we thereby can rely on any kind of revelation from God. Six reasons. Ready? Here's the first one. It's certain because it's revelation. It's certain because it's revelation. Notice the next phrase of verse 1. The word was revealed. The word was revealed. The word revealed means uncovered or exposed It's often used of the exile because in the exile, people inside the city were exposed as they went outside the city. And and people inside the city who were dressed nice and everything were exposed as they were humiliated as they left and were deported from the city. The word reveal means to uncover. It means to take what is hidden away or what is concealed and to make it plain and to make it visible and to make it apparent and to make it known. It is to parade whatever message there is that was hidden and contained to the outside world. 
and you say, why does that matter for the notion of certainty? It's this. God's entire point of his word is to make things known to you. It is to make things obvious to you. It is to communicate something to you, to reveal it to you. Let's put it simply this way. We don't call the Bible the hidden nation. It's not God hiding things. It's God unveiling things. And sometimes people say, well, maybe God doesn't really want us to understand. Maybe God doesn't want it to be clear to us. Maybe God doesn't really want us to figure some of these things out, like prophecy or whatever. That would mean that God then failed at what he tried to do. He didn't try to hide things from you. He tried to what? Reveal them. Which means then, the entire point of this is for you to have certainty. The entire purpose of this prophecy and of the word of God itself, which is by nature and character, revelation, the whole point of it is for you to know for sure what God is talking about. That's why he did it in the first place. You want to know why the word of God is certain? It's certain by purpose. By purpose. It's certain because it's revelation. It's also, here's the second reason why it's certain. It's certain because it's personal. It's personal. Notice, it, this word, as it says in verse 1, was revealed to who? To Daniel, whose name was also called what? Belteshazzar. While, of course, what is revealed to Daniel is now revealed to us through Daniel, originally, this message was meant for him. This message was meant to minister to him. This message was meant to minister to a discouraged individual who had been in exile for 80 years, 70 years or so. He's probably well over 80 at this point. And God wanted to encourage him. And we know his anguish in exile. That's why the text says that his name was also called what? Belteshazzar. That he knew, we know from that that people try to change his name. People try to brainwash him. People try to oppose him. And he had to endure that day in and day out and fight as an exile for his life and for his spiritual life. All of that. And Daniel said this, God revealed this word for me, to help me. Sometimes we wonder, maybe God, maybe God just wants to astound us and confuse us, and maybe he gets delight in that. Sometimes we, we get the picture that God is, is kind of like some bosses who say, hey, you should do X, Y, and Z. You have no idea what they're talking about, and they just are happy that they confused you so that they can get you in the end. That's not our God. Here's what our God does. He says, I had a message tailor-made for Daniel to help Daniel. God's motivation is for clarity and certainty because he cares about his people. He cares about his people. You want to know why this book and everything in it is sure? Because he doesn't want to leave his people hanging. That's why he spoke in the first place, and that's why he spoke to them to them, with a message for them. In addition to that, here's the third one. You want to know why the word of God is certain? Because it's the truth. Notice the next phrase. The word was revealed to Daniel, whose name was also called Belteshazzar. 
And this word was what? True. It was true. This is the key word of everything. And we should see it as such. And Daniel believed it as such. Because turn with me to the last verse of chapter 10. To the last verse of chapter 10. But I will tell you what has been written down. And what is written down is what? Verse 21. It's truth. You begin the chapter mentioning the truth. You end the chapter mentioning what? The truth. What do you think this chapter is all about? God's word is the truth. That's what makes it certain. That's what makes it reliable because it's truth. But of course, there's Pilate's question, what is truth? And, and sometimes we really have to debunk our faulty understanding of the nature of truth. <clears throat> sometimes people say, truth is my feelings. Truth is my feelings. And we kind of chuckle at that. We say, we don't believe that. Oh, sometimes we do. How often, like I said, with that whole vital issue of the certainty of salvation, does somebody say, I just don't feel like a Christian. I just don't feel like God loves me. I just don't feel like I'm holy enough. What is uttered all those times? The word feel. And what do they say? Because I don't feel this way, then it must not be what? True. What we have to remind them is, hey, if you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, you do need to test if you're in the faith, 2 Corinthians 13. But be careful, because feelings don't determine reality. You are Christ's no matter what, if he has saved you. Whether you feel like it or not in the moment, you are his. That's the power of the love of God. That's the power of the unfailing faithfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the truth. That's what we have to remember. Sometimes people think that truth is consensus. Group think. You say, I don't think about that way. Really? How do you handle Amazon reviews? (laughs) When you go on Amazon... And you say, five stars, great. Oh, only one review. Mm -mm -mm -mm. (laughs) I want to go with the one that has 24,739 reviews and it's 4.3 stars. Good, buy that one. You have just admitted truth by consensus. That doesn't prove that the item you're going to get is going to be good. That's why we still want a return policy with Amazon. Sometimes we think, oh, 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 truth is what is logical to me. What is logical. But you can be really smart and really wrong. And sometimes people say, oh, truth is what is consistent. As long as you're consistent, it's true. You can be consistently what? Wrong. That's not truth either. Truth is what is. Truth is reality. Truth is what is actually happening, whether you feel it or not, whether the group says it or not, whether it makes sense to you or not, whether it's consistent with your ideology or not. Truth is what is. And when Daniel says this is the truth, (coughs) he's reminding himself, even as he's reminding all of us, you're going to go through this life And it's not going to make always a lot of sense. And you're going to feel a certain way. People are going to tell you something. It's going to seem reasonable to think a certain way. It's going to seem consistent to think a certain way. You can't go by that. This is what is actually happening. This is the truth. This is what defines reality. It's not what you see or feel or think. It's what the Word of God says. That is what is true.
and that is what is real. And that's how certain this book is. You want to know why you can rely on this book? Because unlike anything you have or have access to or think or contemplate, this is the truth. That means something. That trumps feeling, consensus, consistency, logic, or any kind of sensation. This is the truth. And it's not just that it's the truth. Fourth, it's honest. It's honest. I love this. You say, wait, but if you're honest, you're always telling the truth. And if you're true, you're always honest. Hold on a second. You can actually tell the truth, but you can tell the truth in a way that's general. Let's just put it that way. You could tell it in a way that minimizes the issues. How do you like the dinner? It's fine. That's a true statement. It just doesn't say very much. It doesn't tell the whole story. Abba, how bad is it going to be when I go to the doctor or the dentist? It won't be that bad. What does that even mean? That bad? You don't even know what that is. What are you talking about? That bad as in it's not, or, it's not surgery? It's not, it's not some kind of massive medical procedure? Or it's better than eating vegetables? What do you mean by that bad? You haven't specified anything. But we just give these general statements. It won't be that bad. We haven't even specified what we're comparing it to. As bad as what? We haven't done that. And whenever we give those kind of statements that are so general, that are so generic, people doubt you. They're not searching about you. Why? Because you may be telling the truth, but you're not giving the whole what? Whole truth. You're not being completely honest. And they see you as disingenuous. Here's what Daniel says. Notice, this word is not only true, but one of what? Great conflict. He told the truth. And he was very honest. He said, there's going to be great conflict. It isn't all peace and safety. It isn't just all peace. He could have said, there's peace. That would be a true statement. It just comes after a whole history and then a seven-year tribulation of terrors and war. He could have said that, though. It would be true. But he doesn't. He says there's great conflict. And this prophecy has a lot of conflict. It has conflict between angels. It has conflict between the king of the north and the king of the south throughout all history. It has conflict all the way to the Antichrist. It has conflict between the Antichrist and God himself. It has conflict between good and evil. There's a lot of conflict here. But Daniel saying this isn't discouraging. It's encouraging. You want to know why? Because it's so honest. When Daniel has said there's conflict in Daniel 2 and conflict in Daniel 6 and conflict in Daniel 7 and conflict in Daniel 8 and things are going from bad to worse, if he had just said here, it's all peace and safety, you would have said, really? Because you haven't been saying that for the last, I don't know, nine chapters. That doesn't make a lot of sense. But Daniel is honest. There will be a lot of conflict. And you know the way God wins? Through a lot of conflict. That's the way he wins. He doesn't avoid the issue. He joins in the conflict to overcome it all. That's what he does. And that's what gives the greatest assurance of a plan. Because the plan actually is realistic. The plan is actually matching what we know to be true, what has already been given to us. We know it will be an effective plan. Why trust the word of God? Simple. It's honest. Have you noticed that the word of God doesn't try to sugarcoat life? It doesn't try to say everything is just going to be amazing. You're never going to suffer. 
In fact, what do we often hear most often in the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation? There will be suffering. There will be trial. There will be difficulty. You have it in James. You have it in Psalms. You have an entire book called Lamentations about it. You should thank the Lord that God is honest. He not only gives you the truth, but the whole truth. And in giving you the whole truth, that's where the assurance comes that he can deal with it because he hasn't deceived you. Even more than that, here's the fifth one. The word of God is clear. The word of God is clear. Notice, it says this, that Daniel's granted understanding of this word. He, was, he understood it. Now, there is a difference between knowing and understanding in the book of Daniel. Knowing refers to the apprehension of the content, remembering, for example, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Understanding refers to all the implications, all the ramifications, how things would play out, the significance of things. That's what understanding referred to. And Daniel sometimes, at the end of some visions, he might have known what was happening because he saw the vision and he can understand the general notion of it, comprehend it, but he didn't have full understanding. He, he didn't know about the timing. He still had lingering questions. He still had lingering thoughts that were not answered because maybe this vision didn't even answer them. And we can be like Daniel too. You think about this after a sermon. You might know some of the, what the sermon says, but you might still have some questions because the preacher wasn't clear. That can happen. And sometimes it is that the preacher is clear, but you have an additional question that is answered by other texts outside of what was being preached. That's legitimate too. But there are some times in life, in class or in a sermon, you have no questions. None. Zero. Because it was so clear. Because you understood not only what it says, but how you're supposed to apply it and where it's supposed to go in your life and everything. It's just that clear. Daniel had that moment here. Daniel had that moment here. That kind of clarity. Sometimes people say, well, can we really be sure that you know what God meant when he said what he said in his word? Maybe prophecy is just supposed to remain a mystery to us. Maybe God's truths and propositions are, are just meant to be ambiguous, and, and you just really can't get to know what it means, and you can kind of make up your own meaning. And that's what, why God's word is cool, because you can make up what it is. It's so good. Here's what Daniel says. I didn't just know the word of God after all this. I understood it all. That's the level of certainty he had. He knew the interpretation of the word of God and its application through and through. If you are wondering, can I understand prophecy? Can I understand the word of God? Can I be sure that I know, thus saith the Lord? Here's Daniel's answer. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. If you can't understand the word of God, then it's not very certain, is it? Because you can never know what the guy meant. But if you have that level of, if you have that level of clarity, then you have that level of certainty. And speaking of which, this is so clarifying that it clarifies everything else. It's not just clear, it's clarifying. And that's the final point, point six of this second point. Notice what it says. It gave to him an understanding <clears throat> of the vision, of the vision. Daniel had other questions. Daniel had other thoughts at the end of chapter seven and at the end of chapter eight. Daniel 10 through 12 is so clear. It actually clears up all those other questions in Daniel 7 and 8. He has no questions afterwards. That's how clear it is, which makes it the perfect ending to the book. 
Because after you read this, you realize everything makes sense. I see the plan. I totally get it. 70 weeks and all. I understand it. And that's the perfect way to end the book. This, the word of God is so clear that at the end, you have no questions. You know exactly what it means. You know exactly how to live it. You know exactly how it should change your life. And all that's left to do is to do it. That is the nature of the word of God. Daniel, on the one hand, he reminds us here what we glean as we read Daniel's 10 through 12. You're all about certainty. You're all about clarity. Everything, king versus king, angel versus angel, it's all about proving this is for sure. God has everything covered. But if you're ever wondering, can I trust the word of God? Know this. Can I figure out what it means? Can, can I actually rely on it? This is revelation. This is meant for you to understand. This is the truth. This is honest. This is giving you the big picture. And you can grasp this word because it's not just clear, it's even clarifying. It makes sense of everything. You can trust the word of God. That's this level of certainty that we need. And those are the reasons for certainty. Well, we've talked about the circumstances of certainty. We've talked about the certainty of certainty. And here's the final point, the comfort of certainty. Ironically, this is in verses 2 and 3. The comfort of certainty. If you read through this in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks, didn't eat any delightful bread. I did not even have wine or flesh. It never entered my mouth. I never anointed myself until the three weeks of days were fulfilled. You read about Daniel's mourning here, and you might be puzzled. Well, why is Daniel doing this? And let me just say this. As believers, particularly in our culture, we have lost the biblical discipline of lament. We have lost the biblical discipline of mourning. We, we might mourn for our personal circumstances. Woe is me. We might mourn for family or friends. But we don't mourn very much outside of that. We don't mourn very much outside of that. Here, Daniel, he's mourning. He's grieving, not for himself per se, but for something bigger than himself, for his whole people and the entire plan of God. He's mourning because he's in exile and, and the plan of God isn't coming to fruition. When we're confronted with those realities, we just say, well, that's just life, whatever. And then he's mourning because of sin, the sin of his people and how they're spiritually dead. And when we see sin in our lives or in our circumstances, we just say, well, that's just the way it's going to be. I mean, we are in a sinful world. Okay, whatever. And we shrug our shoulders. And he's mourning because he's desperate for the hope that God has promised him. And he's fasting and weeping over it. And when we think about our hope, we just think, well, that'll be nice one day. That's him. Here's what's absolutely fascinating as I meditated on this. As believers, we are more prone to rant than to mourn. We go on social media and we just say, I don't like this. This guy's bad. This guy's crazy. Are you kidding me? How can this happen? And we don't mourn. We just get mad. But God teaches us that we are to be mourners. 
Blessed is the one who goes into the house of mourning rather than the house of feasting. You have a book of lamentations. You have exhortation to mourn in the Psalms. That's what we need to learn. We need to regain mourning. And there's a specific reason for that. In those days, it says in the text in here, let's just learn, learn a couple of insights about mourning. In those days, this is tying Daniel's specific circumstances back, and, and this is why surgery matters, because Daniel is such in such mourning. And, and that mourning includes this, humility. That's why Daniel says, I, Daniel. Whenever Daniel says, I, Daniel, throughout the entire book, it's an, it's an act of humility. It's an act of undeservedness. I, Daniel, can you? I, well, I don't deserve anything. And here he's reflecting that he is in mourning. You want to know one of the reasons why we don't mourn, instead we just get angry? Because we're proud. Because we think we should be the one to call somebody out. Because we think we should be the one to make the difference instead of God. When you realize that God is offended, not just me, when you realize that God is the one that intervenes, not just me, not me at all, then you mourn instead of rant. Because then you pour out your soul to God to intervene. It says this, that Daniel had an immense sensitivity to the state of his people. That's why it says, I was mourning. The word mourning here means to mourn over the dead. To mourn over the dead. Here's what Daniel understood about his people. They were dead. They were so in sin, they were dead in sin. When's the last time we mourned over people's fallenness? Over their lostness? Not just got mad about it, like on the news, but actually mourned over it. Daniel did, because he loved them. Because he loved them. And not only does, it have, does Daniel have a sensitivity to his people's state, he has a sensitivity to redemptive history, to God's plan. Notice it says this, he mourned for three weeks. On the one hand, that's an intense amount of mourning for a guy who's over 80 years old. You're not eating or drinking or anything for over three weeks? I can't even do that for three minutes. <laughs> but he not only did this, but here in Hebrew, it literally says this, three weeks of days. You say, why does it say three weeks of days? Because Daniel had previously made a 70-week, what, prophecy. And so he has to make sure that you understand, I'm not saying we're in the three weeks of Daniel's 70 weeks. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about actually three weeks. That's what I'm talking about now. And that's Daniel's point. Daniel's point is this. The 70 weeks haven't even started yet. Lord, I know... I'm, we're, we're not even, we, the starting gun hasn't even gone off for us to, for you to finish your plan and to hit the landmarks. Daniel is distraught over the fact of where he is in God's plan. Do you know God's plan well enough and where we fit in God's plan to mourn? That's the only way you will. That's the only way you will. And notice the intensity of Daniel's mourning. He doesn't eat anything special. He doesn't need anything to sustain him, and he doesn't even take care of himself. That's why he doesn't have any nice bread. That's why he doesn't have flesh or wine, and it doesn't even enter his mouth at all. He has nothing, and that's why he doesn't even anoint himself in any way, because there's no self-care at all. So there's no self here. 
You want to know someone sometimes why we don't mourn? Because we're still just focused on ourselves. We just think, oh yeah, those people out there, they're suffering. But at least it's not me. I'm okay. I can go around my business. Daniel didn't care about himself. He just cared about the Lord. And that's what caused him to mourn. And Daniel mourned hope. Notice the last phrase. Until the three weeks of days were fulfilled. This is actually during Passover. You know what they celebrate at Passover? God's deliverance and the birth of Israel. You know what Daniel was hoping for? A new birth of Israel. That's what he was hoping for. That's what he was praying for. And that's what he was laboring here. And what he wanted was for God, as the text said, to fulfill the weeks. He wanted the fulfillment. That's what everything in him longed for. Do we have such a hope in God that it so consumes us that we would even fast so that his will would be done? Daniel did. Daniel did. Because he had that kind of hope. He lived for that. You know, I said that biblically, mourning is part of what we do. It's in the Old Testament. I listed some references, but it's in the New Testament too, isn't it? Do you remember the words of our Lord? Blessed are those who what? Mourn. He wanted us to mourn like Daniel. But you know what's beautiful? What's the next phrase? Blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. In Daniel's mourning for three weeks, distraught because he's hopeful for his people and God's promises and burdened by their sin, what's the next phrase? Then he saw Christ. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be what? Comforted. God always keeps his promise. That's for next week. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, your word is sure. And the certainty of your word ultimately is in Christ. And so even in the midst of mourning, which we ought to do, because we know this world is not right, and we mourn over the great distress and perversion and distraughtness that sin brings, but we rejoice because the word is certain and the certainty is in Christ and Christ is the ultimate comforter. May it be, O oh God, that in the midst of our own heart and soul, we prize this doctrine of the certainty, of the assurance, of the reliability of Scripture. And we glorify you whenever there are difficulties, whenever there are setbacks, whenever there are trials, we say to ourselves, yet your word, O oh God, is more sure than what I know I know. And may you be honored in that. May your word be exalted in that. And may our eyes all the more fixed to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the certainty of all things. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen.